this week I was flipping through a magazine, came across a picture, and it was a picture like this, and the tagline said, can a household appliance make you a better person, was the question. And the answer was, it can, if it helps you cut down on the 40 gallons of water the typical family uses to shower each day. And I thought this was interesting. This, uh, the shower head's interesting in itself. Uh, but I thought their marketing of it was really interesting. This idea of buying a shower head or any appliance for your house, their way that they were trying to get you to buy that was by asking, can it make you a better person? You know, and I don't know when you walk through, you know, Bed Bath & Beyond or Best Buy, if you're thinking, will this appliance make me a better person? <laughs> but, but that's what they're marketing it towards. The, the idea is that you will buy something if it feels like it makes you a better person or it feels like you're doing some good. Because the truth is we all like to do good and feel like we're doing good. I logged onto Facebook yesterday, and at the top of my feed was this little banner that said, do you want to give a certain amount or something to hurricane relief? Click here. And you could click there to do it. I logged onto Twitter, and they were live broadcasting something called a Good Citizen concert uh, that was happening on, uh, in Central Park in New York City. And I wasn't really aware of it, so I clicked on it to kind of figure out what it was. And it was a, it said, it described itself as a gathering to encourage people to take action to eliminate extreme poverty in the world. And they were live broadcasting this. And later in the day, I had gone to CVS, and just as I'm ready to check out and paying at the little uh, machine there, well, it pops up on the screen. Would you like to give a dollar to hurricane relief or two or three? And this idea that we should want to do good. And the implication is that if you're there, that you would want to be able to help in these situations. We live in a world that is, uh, in many ways, uh, many people want to do good and, uh, for other people. And that's good, especially people in great need. There are organizations to get clean water out to people, to end poverty, end human trafficking, bringing peace to war areas, ending racism, and others. People like to do good, and doing good is good. Have you ever noticed that doing good makes you feel good? You ever feel that? You know, you do something good, and you say, hey, you know, I kind of, that kind of felt good to me. There's actually a scientific uh, research that goes into that feeling you have, and they call it the helper's high. The helper's high. That when you do something good for someone, that your brain actually releases an endorphin and you actually get this feeling of now I feel good. And you actually get a feeling uh, of satisfaction and gratitude when you do good for something. So you do good and you feel good, but I think something else happens too. I think something else happens when we do good and we feel good, and that is I think we believe we are good. We believe we are good, that when we do something good, we feel good, and then we start believing we are good. And this idea of something we do kind of translating into someone we are is not that foreign to us when you think about it. We do it all the time. Maybe you run, and you would consider yourself then, I am a runner. Or maybe you teach, and someone asks you, hey, what do you do? And you say, I am a teacher. 
You could say, I teach, but a lot of times we just, we just pull that right into who we are, and we say, I am a teacher. You nurse, so I say, I am a nurse. Or you're a student, you know, or you go to school, and you say, I am a student. So we take these things we do, and we actually pull them right into our identity. And so it's not that hard for us to think, well, I do something good, or I do good, so I am good. There's nothing wrong with doing good. In fact, God has a lot to say about the importance of doing good. When Jesus at one point was asked by someone, of all the important commandments in the law, of all the important things that people can do, what's the most important? And Jesus said, uh, the greatest commandment is to you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That is the first, the great and first commandment. But he didn't stop there. He said, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't stop at just loving God. He said, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, you have good that you are supposed to be doing. You're supposed to love the person who is near you, who's in need, who you have the ability to help. That's your neighbor. In fact, God is so concerned about doing good that one of the clearest definitions of what sin is in the Bible has to do with doing good. James chapter 4, verse 17 says, Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. It's probably one of the clearest definitions you'll find in Scripture about uh, about what sin is. The truth is, God cares a lot about doing good, and he expects people to do good. But here's the assumption I want us to look at today. There's an assumption of our times that I think many in our culture and many of our world embrace. And if we're honest, maybe some of us sitting here today probably embrace this as well. And the assumption is this, that people should do good Generally, and generally, people are good. You know, I think if you walk down the street and you ask someone, hey, do you think people should do, you know, good things? Most people, of course, people should do good. That's why we have the little thing at CVS that asks me, because the assumption is, hey, you should want to help here. You, you, people should do good. Then I think we also have this assumption that many people would think, are people good? And they may not say all people, but they'll say generally, yeah. People are good. This is an assumption that exists in our culture. One of the places I, I saw this clearly was in an article that David Brooks had written for the New York Times back in 2012. This was about a horrible situation where you had a, an American that had, you may remember it back in uh, 2012, the situation where an American had killed uh, 16 people over in Afghanistan uh, innocent people, uh, children as well, and they're just trying to figure out what happened, how this guy get to this, what did he snap, um, what happened in this situation. And David Brooks, writing on this, said, any one of us would be shocked if someone we knew and admired killed children. But these days, it's especially hard to think through these situations because of the worldview that prevails in our culture. According to this view, most people are naturally good. The monstrosities of the world are caused by a few people, who are fundamentally warped and evil. You catch that presumption. The presumption of our world is that most people are good. 
Most people are fundamentally good. Sure, there's some bad apples, but most people are good. So it's hard when we see something that isn't good happen. We have a hard time processing. But I want to push back on this assumption a little bit this morning, this assumption that people should do good and generally are good. I want to push back on that because I think there are at least three problems with that assumption that we know. And the first one is this. The first problem is, how can we know what good is? The first problem is, who gets to say what is good? And we all kind of assume, well, we should all do good and we all know what good is. But do we really? Who gets to say what good is? Is good something we all know and it stays and it doesn't move? Or is good kind of a moving target? By way of kind of humorous example, let me read you something uh, about good that uh, was actually published in 1965, was published in a periodical called Housekeeping Monthly. All right? And the title of this article is The Good Wife's Guide. The Good Wife's Guide. So if you wanted to know what a good wife is, this is what a good. In May 13, 1965, Housekeeping Monthly said this, The Good Wife's Guide. Plan ahead, even the night before, to have a delicious dinner ready when your husband gets home from work. This is a way of letting him know you've been thinking about him and are concerned with his needs. Prepare yourself. Put on some makeup. Put a ribbon in your hair. And be fresh looking. He's been with a lot of work-weary people. Prepare the children. Take a few minutes to wash them up. Brush their hair and change their clothes if needed. Remember they are little treasures and he would like to see them playing the part. Have a cool or warm drink for him. And arrange his pillow and take off his shoes. Over the cooler months, you should prepare and light a fire for him to unwind by. After all, catering to his comfort will bring you immense satisfaction. <laughs> Heard that, Kathy Duncan. Uh, let him talk first. Remember that his topics of conversations are more important than yours. Never complain if he comes home late or goes out to dinner or entertainment without you. Instead, try to understand his world of strain and pressure and his need to relax. The ironic thing is there's actually probably some wisdom in there underneath the stereotypes and other things that are there. But here's why I bring it up. Here's the point. 1965, that was the good wife's guide. If Housekeeping Monthly, which I have no idea if the journal is still around today, I'm guessing it isn't, but if it was still around today in 2017 and they wrote something called the good wife's guide, I don't know the editors of Housekeeping Monthly, but I'm guessing it would sound different. I'm guessing it would sound different, right? But how could it? This is the good wife's guide. This is what good was. See, good maybe is more of a moving target than we would like to admit, and that what's good at one time may not be seen as good in another time. The truth is we live in this cut flower civilization we were ta we've talked about where we want to keep the beauty of some things but cut out the roots. It's nice that people want uh, to do what they see as good, and what they see as good is to help people. That's nice. But what if, what about if what people see as good starts to feel like not good to some people. What if 
Some people start defining good as eliminating people who disagree with them. What if good seems to, to some people, means eliminating people just because of their race, their religion, their age, or their distinct special need? What about when people start defining good like that? It scares me to think about a world defining good apart from God because we can think ourselves into a place where no matter what 51% of the people say, it becomes the definition of what good is. In his book, Morality After Auschwitz, Peter Haas asks how an entire society could have willingly participated in state-sponsored program of mass torture and genocide for over a decade without any serious opposition. He argues that far from being contemptuous of ethics, the perpetrators acted in strict conformity with an ethic which held that, however difficult and unpleasant the task might have been, mass extermination of the Jews and gypsies was entirely justified. The Holocaust as a sustained effort was possible only because a new ethic was in place that did not define the arrest and deportation of Jews as wrong, and in fact defined it as, listen to this, ethically tolerable and even good. They saw it was good. What happens when a large part of society tries to define as good something like that? To say that there are objective moral values, which many people today would like to say, is to say that something is right or wrong independently of whether anybody believes it to be so. It is to say, for example, that Nazi anti-Semitism was morally wrong even though the Nazis who carried out the Holocaust thought it was good. And it would still be wrong even if the Nazis had won World War II and succeeded in exterminating or brainwashing everybody who disagreed with them. See, good is not as much of a stable thing when we take God out of the equation as we sometimes think. Good suddenly becomes pretty subjective. Another example is, some of you may have heard of the article that kind of uh, took off lately and got a lot of press, this article that the headline said, Iceland Eliminates Down Syndrome. Many people, that headline, caught that headline because they thought, wow, what happened? What is Iceland doing? But actually, Iceland has not come up with any amazing cure for Down syndrome. They haven't come up with a way to fix the situation. What they have done, what has happened in Iceland is uh, nearly every time in a pregnancy that a baby is, potential, is diagnosed with potential Down syndrome, there's an abortion. And so last year in Iceland, there were less than a handful of babies born with Down syndrome, not because there weren't babies conceived that may have had Down syndrome, but because they were all eliminated before they were born. And there are some who will read that article and say it's good. So what happens? We all want to do good. We feel good when we do good. But one of the problems is good is hard to say what it is apart from God. I think many people will assume we can be good from, apart from God and no good apart from God. The truth is today, most people just assume they know what good is and what good is not. It seems like our world wants to keep the second commandment but cut it off from the first one. 
Many in our world, it seems like, like the love the neighbor as yourself, as long as we can define who the neighbor is and what love is, but we want to disconnect it from love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, because then that God would tell us what good is. But we as a world would rather make that decision ourselves. So many in our culture, I think when you have this assumption that you should do good and that we are good, they're in a sense taking the second commandment and separating it from the first So we don't always know exactly what good is. But the second point is this. Even if we could somehow agree and know what good is apart from God, apart from God, there's no moral obligation to be good. So I can go to CVS and stand in front of that little machine there, figure out if i got to stick my chip in or slide my card or whatever I need to do. And then it asks me, do you want to give a dollar or two dollars or five dollars? Apart from God... That cashier cannot look at me and say, you should give. See, apart from God, you remove any ought or should or moral obligation. Because I would say, why should I give? Well, it's good to do. Well, who's good? Who says it's good? Well, everybody knows it's good. Well, I don't want to give. I don't think it's good. And I'm a part of everybody. So I don't want to give. So why should I give? And we just keep going around and around because apart from God, you cannot give me a reason why I ought to do something. There is no moral obligation apart from some outside objective truth that tells us what good is. And so we can say, hey, everybody's good and everybody should do good. But the reality is you can't say that if there's no God Because if there's no God and we've all come from nothing and we're going to nothing, you can no more tell me that I should give a dollar at the CVS to to, uh, hurricane relief than you can tell a lion that he should stop eating zebras. Uh, It's just that that's just what, you know, they would say, well, the lion has evolved to eat zebras and so he eats zebras. So, So you cannot say he ought not eat zebras any more than you could say I ought to give $5 to this. Because there's no ethic that's grounded outside of the fact that we just agree or don't agree of what good is. Third and finally, the question is this. So, so we, good is kind of a moving target, and there's no moral obligation to be good apart from God. But the third thing I'd push back on this assumption is this, and that is asking the question, are people really generally good? Are people real? Why would we say that? Why do we think people are generally good? Or why would, and I'm, again, I'm just making a little bit of a hypothesis here, and you may disagree with it, but why would it, if you walked out on the street and you asked people, hey, are people generally good? I think most people would probably say, yeah, people are generally good. History, and just turning on the news, would probably cause us to think otherwise. Whether it's world wars, genocide, slave trade, ruthless dictators, a local murder, or just hurtful words and pain caused by a family member or a loved one would cause us to say, are people really generally good? Some might say, well, there are just a few bad apples that are spoiling it for everybody. But if we're honest, we could just as easily say the opposite. There are a few good apples that sometimes make things a little better. So which is it? The optimist, the glass half full person, looks at the you know, Jimmy Fun telethons and the ice bucket challenges that raise millions of dollars to fight diseases, and they say, look, people are generally good. 
But the pessimists, the glass half empty people, said, looks at 30,000 children that die every day from preventable causes and says, how can you possibly say people are generally good with things like that going on? So which is it? Which is it for you? What's your answer? Why is there some good in this bad world? Or why is there all this bad in this good world? Well, according to the Bible, it's both. It's both. People are good and not good. Humans were created in the image of God, and God said it was good. Don't take my word for it. Take his. Genesis chapter 1 says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very And there was evening and morning, and there was morning the sixth day. God said it was good. God created humans, and he said it's good. They're good. They're a part of my creation, and my creation is good. But it wasn't long after that that men and women decided to go their own way, disobey God, and sin came into the situation. And so Paul can write years later in Romans chapter 3 that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, it's not just that as humans we're sinners uh, and, and we have that label on us. The truth is we've all done things that make us sinners. I don't need to be related to Adam or Eve or anybody else for me to be a sinner. I've got enough in my own life to own the fact that my actions, my thoughts, and my words at times have not been in line with what God would call good. Now, there's something that I'm... Here's something our world does not like to hear that directly goes against the assumption that we've been discussing. In fact, I'm about to say something that because this assumption is so prevalent in our world, many of us in this room may not like to hear it. This statement I'm about to make grates against all the pop psychology that we've been raised with and the feel-good, positive feedback thinking that we've come to embrace. Are you ready for it? Here's the statement. You do not just sin. You are a sinner. Same thing with me. And let me say it in a way that maybe not as theologically accurate, but in the language we're talking about today. And give me a second to explain it. This, you don't just do bad things, you are bad. Now, that's hard to hear. In fact, it's hard to say. In fact, as I was thinking about this message, I thought this may be the only message I've ever preached where it's easier to say someone's a sinner than to say something else. Because usually the hardest thing a pastor will say is you're a sinner. But when I thought about the language we're talking about, I think it's even harder in our world to say that we're bad. Because none of us want to think of ourselves in that way. In fact, good parenting techniques will often tell you when a child does something wrong, correct the behavior and make sure you clarify the difference between their bad behavior and they are not a bad person. And I think there's wisdom in that. But I think it's interesting that we don't apply the wisdom the other way. That when a child does something good, we don't hesitate to say, you are such a good boy, you are such a good girl, you are a good person. 
And it's interesting to think about the fact that at times uh, we don't do that. We don't want to think of ourselves in that way. And it's hard. It's hard because in our world, our world wants to tell us that people are generally good. But if we look at history, if we look at news, if we look around us, some, there has to be some other explanation for some of this. Because we don't even have to look really around us, do we? We can look within us and know our own thoughts and hearts at times. So here we are, created good and yet sinful, and what to do. According to God's holy law, either we live a perfect life or we bear the consequences of our imperfect life. Those are the options. Unless a third option is provided. And the answer to that third option is Jesus, who has inserted a third option between living a perfect life and suffering the consequences of our imperfect life. Reminds me of the words of Paul in Romans chapter 7, wrestling with this, and he said, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And here I am, created good, and yet I've done bad. And I am bad apart from God. And yet Jesus comes in and changes the whole situation. And Jesus comes in and changes literally everything. And not only are you able to do good, but Jesus changes your identity so you and I, through faith in him, are good. Not good in some ambiguous, subjective way that people might think, but good in an objective standing before a perfect and holy God. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's what, the, here's what Jesus offers. You and I come and we bring all of our mess and we bring our unrighteousness and we bring all the bad we have done and through faith in Jesus Christ and his perfect life, we get his righteousness. We get everything that God sees in him as perfect and good and is applied to us through faith in him. Paul said it again in Romans chapter 3. He put it this way. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction for all who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, Paul, Paul's saying this, look, we've all sinned, but anyone who puts their faith in Jesus, he gets cleansed, and the righteousness of God is yours. And no longer are your deeds of unrighteousness held against you, and you are good. Not because of what you have done, because who knows if we'd ever do enough. Not because of what you might do, because who knows if it's good enough, but because of what Christ has done. He applies his identity to your identity. When you put your faith in him, Ephesians chapter 2 says it this way, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one can boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, for which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are made good and right not because of things we've done, but through faith in Jesus, because of what he did on the cross for you and for me. 
He became sin that we can be made righteous. And if you want an example of this, the, the proof of this, you only need to look at the cross or actually a little to the right or to the left of the cross. We don't know which side. But on either side of Jesus, the Bible tells us there were two men who were crucified. We don't know their names, but one of them, we're told, was a thief. We don't know his name. It's interesting that we only know his identity through his action. It's a thief, a cross. That's how he was defined. And as he was being crucified beside Jesus for his crimes, he turned to Jesus and he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And at first thought, you might think, well, this is a last-ditch effort of a dying man in a bad situation. This is jailhouse salvation. This is just reaching out because he's got nowhere else to go. But think about it. Think about what he's doing. He's reaching out to the man beside him who is also being humiliated and crucified for crimes that the Roman Empire deemed he was worthy of death for. This is not someone who looks very kingly. And yet he says, looking past the blood and the sweat and the nails and the, everything going on, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What we might see as a last-ditch effort for hope is really an incredible statement of faith saying, you are a king. You may be sitting on this cross, and someone may have put you here, but I believe you're a king. And remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And my question is, based on what? Today you'll be with me in heaven. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Based on what? The good that he did in the past? He's being crucified as a thief for his crimes against humanity. The good that he might do in the future, he's only got moments left on this earth and they're going to be spent hanging on a cross gagging for breath. So based on what? Based on the same thing that you and I are granted salvation. Based on the same way that you and I are made good. Based on his faith in Jesus and that is the bottom line, that God gives us this opportunity not to do good, to try and make ourselves good, not to feel good about ourselves, not to believe we are good, but to objectively be made good through our faith in Jesus Christ. Here is what happens the moment when you put your faith in Jesus. God takes your unrighteousness. He takes my badness. He replaces it with the goodness and righteousness of Jesus. He no longer sees our sin, but he sees Christ's perfect life and sacrifice. My goodness is not based on my being good, but Christ who has been perfect. And so we have this opportunity to experience Christ's righteousness, to be made good. And then my last question for us this morning is then what? Then what do we do? Assuming that we all don't just go to be with Jesus in that moment like the thief on the cross, then what do we do? Well, here's the amazing thing. It goes all the way back to the beginning of this message. We are supposed to go out and do good. Did you catch the end of that Ephesians verse? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for, for 
good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, ultimately, we are supposed to do good. But we're not supposed to do good to make us feel good. We're not to do good because we're going to earn and make ourselves good. We do good because God is good. And he has been good to us. And he has called and commanded us to be good to others. In fact, there is a moral imperative. There is a moral obligation for Christians. Now we are made good and we do have a moral obligation to do good and to love others, not to become good, but because good has been done for us in Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. If it's true that our culture is a cut flower world that likes to take the second commandment and leave the first, we as Christians need to be very careful. We don't try and take the first and leave the second. As followers of Jesus, we cannot say we love God with all of our heart if we do not love our neighbor. It's not my words. These are God's words in the Bible. John, in his book, uh, letter, says it this way. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Can't, can't say we're keeping the first commandment if we're not keeping the second. James also said it. James says it this way, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. We are called to do good because we have been made good in Christ. So we are not good apart from God and doing good cannot make us good in fact, with no God, there is no compelling reason to do good. But in Christ and our faith in his work, we are made good. We are commanded to do good things for people. And that is the good news. See, the word gospel literally translates good news. And when you and I have experienced the gospel and we go and live out the gospel we bring good news. We bring news that is good, that you can be made good in Jesus Christ, but we also do good to the world around us because of what God has done for us. So as we close out this morning in this message, maybe you're sitting here and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, and you've been sitting here listening about this, and maybe today God is speaking to you. Speaking to you about this fact that no matter how hard you try, the goalposts keep moving on what is good. If you just go by this world, if you just go by on what you feel is good, if you just go by on what you think is good, the goalposts are going to keep moving. And the only way that you and I can be completely made good is by trusting in the one who lived a perfect life for us, gave his life for us, and that through faith in him, we are cleansed and made right with God. That's what he offers us. That's the good news. And maybe today is the day that you would want to put your faith and your trust in him and stop trusting in your own actions to try and produce goodness. 
But for the Christian also, I think this message has something to say to us. You and I, who have been made good by God, now have a good obligation. We cannot love God and not love our neighbor. The world may want to love neighbors apart from God, but we must confess at times the church has tried to love God without loving our neighbors. The church at times has attempted to live out the first commandment while not considering the second maybe nearly as important. And yet Jesus says the second is like it. So we must do both. I'm going to ask our music ministry to return. And let me close out with this uh, story. When I lived in Lowell, for a while I lived beside a guy named Scott. And uh, Scott really didn't go to church as far as I knew. So I thought I would uh, show Scott what a Christian was like. Living beside him and being his neighbor, we'd certainly see each other a lot. And, and I thought, well, this is my opportunity to show Scott what a Christian is like. Scott was a great guy. He would always bring his snowblower over to do the bottom of my driveway when there was a big storm. And you know what it's like, right? The, the bottom of the drive, the end of the driveway, that heavy crud that the snow plows leave and gets iced over. And the cruel joke of it is you're at the, you've already shoveled your whole driveway and now you get to the heaviest and worst part. But Scott would always come over on a heavy storm and bring his snowblower and, and snowblow the end of the driveway. And if I wasn't home one day and, and uh, Wendy was home, he would send his boys over with shovels to, to shovel our driveway for us. If I needed a tool, he would be the first one to offer to let me borrow one of his tools. When a tree that was uh, on my property one day in a storm fell on Scott's property and crushed his beautiful red Jeep, Scott didn't come out of the house angry. He came out of the house with his chainsaw started cutting up the tree and moving it out of the street and letting cars pass and stacking the wood and, 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 uh, and just didn't say a word. In fact, when I insisted on paying for the, at least the insurance deductible that he had to pay on his car, he would hear nothing of it. That was just the kind of guy that Scott was. When I had to run out at sometimes to take Isaac someplace uh, and Wendy wasn't at home, Scott would come in and sit in the living room and while Bella slept so that someone could be home with her for a few minutes while I had to run out. It was just the kind of guy that he was. I'm not saying Scott was perfect. I didn't know him well enough. And uh, I wouldn't say that any of us are perfect. But here's the thing. I thought I was going to show Scott what it was like to be a Christian. And maybe I did. Uh, but as I look back, I realize that Scott probably taught me more about what it was to be a neighbor. And we as Christians are called to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But we are also called to love our neighbor as ourselves. And who is our neighbor? Jesus goes on to explain what that means, but essentially it comes down to this. Anyone who's in need near you, that you have the ability to help. That's pretty much what it comes down to. Someone that's in need that you have the ability to help becomes your neighbor. And so I would say the world around us needs to be careful 
because they've tried to live out the second commandment and take it away from the first. They're trying to live out morals and ethics that are no longer grounded in an objective truth outside themselves, and that'll only last so long before the bloom falls off the flower. But I think God would also say to the church, be careful. Be careful that you do not sever the first from the second commandment, that you are called not only to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but you are called to love your neighbor as yourself. Not so that you can become good, but because of the good God has shown you. Because now, through your faith in Jesus Christ, you and I are good, and we are called to do good. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we as Christians... Lord, it's an important time for us to look and ask your Holy Spirit just to search our hearts. God, are there places in our hearts, in our lives, where we have, Lord, forsaken our obligation to do good to others, Lord? Lord, the good that you've called us to do, the love that you've called us to show, where would you speak to our hearts about that? And if you're in here this morning, with every head bowed and eye closed just so you can spend time with you and God. It's not a moment for other people to be concerned about or for you to be concerned about other people. This is just a moment between you and the Lord. And maybe you're here this morning and you're in that category that said, you know, I came in here and I felt good about myself because of some of the good things I've done, but now I realize that the good things I do will never ultimately make me good. And that this morning you want to put your faith and your trust in Jesus and receive the goodness that he offers to you through giving your life to him. And if that's you this morning and you're here and you say, I just want to to pray for you and I just want to say a prayer for you and include you in my prayer as I close out this time. And if that's you, I just ask you to indicate to God and say, God, that's me. I want to do this. Just lift your hand in the air and say, God, I want to stop trying to be good on my own and I want to receive the goodness that you offer me through Jesus Christ. And if that's you, just put your hand in the air, lift your eyes up to me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Back. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Many hands going up, and it doesn't really surprise me. Because I think we often live in this world that tells us if we will just do enough good, that we will be good. We actually have to look into the truth of God's word and we see it's just not possible. But thank God that he has made a way through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for these many men and women who have raised their hand today and said they're tired and they're done with trying in their own strength to make themselves good. And this morning, they want to just fall upon your grace, fall upon your mercy, and ask that Jesus, as we put our faith in him, that he would be the one who makes us good. And that we would then be able to go and live lives doing good, not out of some obligation that that, that is burden on us to please God, but because we know we already have his pleasure, because we already know we have 
his love and acceptance and grace. Lord, I pray for those men and women as they have reached out their hand to you. Would you do what your word says? Would you draw close to them? Would you guide them and lead them as they endeavor to follow you in a greater way, doing the good that you've called them to? In Jesus' name, amen. 